Welcome to the Radiant Visalia podcast. Join us at one of our two services, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Download the Church Center app or visit our website, radiantvisalia.com, to stay connected with us. All right, enjoy. shift that's taking place, and I think with anything that's shifting, uh, sometimes we sense it or we feel it before we have language for it. Has anyone ever experienced that before, where you know something, but you don't actually know it yet, but you know it down here, but you don't have words for it, or even um, thoughts that bring clarity to it? Um, I believe that there's a shift going on. I think all of Christendom feels it. I think that there's a high level of fear and anxiety in the church because there is a shift that's taking place and we all sense it. We might not have words for it or something or someone to point at and blame for it, but we know that there's a shift and some of us have words for it and some of us don't. I felt like this article in the New York Times captures the shift that we all sense. I think some of these statistics will be a surprise to you, but some of these statistics will be like, I I know this. I know that this is what's going on. And I don't know how to say it, but I just know it in my knower. You know what I'm saying? Anyone know it in their knower? I don't have words for this stuff. You just know it. I don't know how. This article in the New York Times is called Good Time for God, question mark. It's been a bad decade for God, at least so far. Despite the rising popularity of Pope Francis, who was elected in 2013, Google searches for churches are 15% lower in the first half of this decade than they were during the last half of the previous one. Searches questioning God's existence are up. Many behaviors that he supposedly abhors have skyrocketed. Porn searches are up 83%. For heroin, it's 32%. How are the Ten Commandments doing? Not well. Love thy neighbor is the most common search with the word neighbor in it, but right behind at number two is neighbor porn. The top Google search, including the word God, is God of War a video game with more than 700,000 searches per year. The number one search that includes how-to and Walmart is how to steal from Walmart, beating all questions related to coupons, price matching, or applying for a job. He goes on to say, people may not share their doubts with friends, relatives, or rabbis, but they inevitably share them with Google. Every year in the United States, there are hundreds of thousands of pointed questions, most of them coming from the Bible Belt. The number one question in the country is who created God? Second is why God allows suffering. This is the famous problem of evil. If God is all-powerful and all-good, how could he allow suffering? The third most asked question is why does God hate me? And the fourth, is why does God need so much praise? 
In the era before digital data, there were debates about the relative popularity of celebrities and deities. Most famously, when John Lennon claimed that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. Lennon didn't live long enough to compare Google search counts. Today, it's pretty clear that Jesus does not get the most attention, at least online. There are 4.7 million searches every year for Jesus Christ. The Pope gets 2.9 million, and there are 49 million for Kim Kardashian. For some of you, this is surprising. For some of you, it's like, I know, I know this, I sense this, I have some a rumbling and anxiety about what I see happening. There's a shift happening. The landscape is changing. Our culture at a popular level is saying to us, we don't need that and we don't want that. Your traditions, your religion is in the way of where we are headed, and there's been a shift that's taken place. And the shift, if I could describe it or try to put words on it, is that we have gone from the center to the margin. We've gone from the center to the edge. Even if you look at our towns, you'll see all the old churches right at the center of town because the town was built around the church. And now you'll find our new churches, our biggest churches, on the edge, on the outskirts of town. We've gone from the center, at the middle of what's going on, to the very edge of what's happening. And that causes a reaction in us. It causes a reaction in me. The other shift is we've gone from the majority, or the moral majority, to the minority. And that causes some fear as well. Probably the biggest one, at least that I'm feeling and maybe you're feeling as well, is as Christians, uh, we've gone from just being weird and strange, we've always been that, you know, just kind of, that's absurd, you know, we've gone from being weird and strange to being a threat. And now not only are we irrelevant, but we're extreme and we pose a threat to what's happening. And some of you, I know most of you, if you've been a believer for some time, probably sense or feel this shift taking place. Well, the church usually responds in some ways when this has happened. Hey, good news. This isn't the first time this has happened. I've been uh, finding a lot of courage in understanding that um, Jesus has led his church through this before. But here are the other things that are looking to lead us right now. We can respond in a few different ways. The first way you can respond when you read an article like that, you and I can respond in fear. We can respond in uh, fear that leads to self-preservation. The fear, man, it sells. I can't believe the amount of like seven blood moons of the fourth antichrist, of the you know fourth horseman, of the... Anti, you know, it's just like we can't get enough of it, you know. The end is near, you know, the fear just sells. There's nothing quite like a good left behind series in a time like this. Fear sells. The problem is, is that this fear narrative may sell in the church, but doesn't sell outside of the church. 
there's nothing more uninviting than you living in fear. No one wants to be a part of that. Really. Have you ever had someone try to enroll you into their fear narrative? And you're like, man, no thanks. Like whatever you're, I don't even care. That might even come true. I'm just not up for whatever you're doing, you know? And then that leads to self-preservation, which the church has done too, right? It's like, uh, I call it like, let's get some golden bail. You know, like, anyone have that thought? I'm leaving this country. Like, I hate the way we're headed. Let's get what we've got. Let's hold on to that last thread. Boy, when the levee breaks, it's going to be over. You know, just this fear that leads to self-preservation. And we would all, if you're here and you're young, you're under 30, you're probably snickering. Like, yeah, that was then. But then there's a couple other responses that can happen when we're the minority, when we're put in this situation. And those here who are under 30, maybe some that are over, but probably if you're under 30, you've given way and you've responded with compromise and syncretism. So rather, you've judged the older generation for being a fearful fundamentalist who's pulled their money out and has, you know, converted it to gold. You've judged them right? And, and you yourself, you're relevant. Here's the problem with the relevance is that it usually leads to some compromise. Because what happens for us is that we say like, hey, look, you know, the world's a different place now. And what we need to do is, is we need to reinterpret the scripture in light of our culture. And what we do is we flip the authority structure. And so Rather than seeing or viewing our culture through the lens of Scripture, we see the Scripture through the lens of our culture, and we try to get it to fit. Well, our culture is really into this, so how do we highlight that and pull that out of Scripture? How do we make the Bible fit? How do we make Jesus fit within our culture? And it flips the authority structure, and when that happens, it's just completely impotent, because you detach his holy word from a holy God. And so there's no authority in it. And then that leads to, you know, to be honest with you, the biggest problem with this in our generation is that we're miserable. It's not leading to life. This type of compromise. If you're here and you're living in compromise, you're the worst witness. Want to know why? Because you can't party well on Saturday night because you've got the Holy Spirit in you, so you're not even good at that, and then you're not good at coming to church because you feel regret because you drank too much last night. So you suck at the party, and then you suck here as well, and you're miserable, and no one wants to be invited into that. You've compromised. You can't party because you've got the Holy Spirit, and then you can't be at church because you've got the Holy Spirit, and so you're just a terrible witness because you're really uncomfortable, even right now. Feel it? And so because we're living compromised lives, we're not testifying, and we're going to read from the book of Daniel, and if you think Daniel reached King Nebuchadnezzar because he watered it down or made it relevant, you're wrong. He took a hard stand on some things. And uh, yeah, there's a, a syncretism that happens where we just sync up with the culture because we can't stand being out of step. So we sync up with our culture because we don't understand the relevance of our holiness. We think that our holiness is in the, 
in the way of us connecting with, influencing and impacting our culture. But that's just not the truth. I believe that there's a better response. That response we're going to read from Daniel 1. And I want to introduce a term. So rather than fear and self-preservation or compromise or syncretism, I believe the better response is for us as the people of God, as the church, to be a creative minority. Read with me in Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter, so just beware. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Remember, the big idea here in Daniel is despite appearances, it's God who's in control. It wasn't that Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem. It was that God gave the people over. And so Daniel, the foundation for um, his faithfulness is that he understands that God is in control of who's in control. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, uh, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, uh, learning, and, and competent to stand before the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Get the cream of the crop in Jerusalem and bring them here to Babylon so that we can teach them our ways. Get the good ones and bring them here. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. The good life. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. So they got new names. Daniel, he's called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he's called Shadrach. Mishael, he's called Meshach. And Azariah, he's called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servant for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner, 
and, and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. John Tyson defines a creative minority like this. A creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships, knotted together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging cultural setting, who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who coined the term creative minority, says this, to become a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith, seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. And this is a demanding and risk-laden choice. There is a tension, right? A tension we know, a tension that Uh, Jesus said, was represented in this idea of being in but not of the world. Uh, Beth Moore says it this way. I've been listening to a lot of Beth Moore and her study on Daniel. Because it's not just for women and brunch. It's, It's good stuff. She says, and I think this is great. Because we know the tension of being in but not of the world. She says that these young men were assigned to Babylon. They were assigned to Babylon But then Babylon was assigned to them. They were pressing in, trying to figure out how to be faithful in exile and how to bring glory to God in this really godless culture. And this godless culture was also pressing in on them, trying to shape them, trying to transform them. Here they are, trying to transform this culture, but the culture is trying to transform them. Anyone felt that tension before? Here we are, we're supposed to be these agents of change transforming what we see, but what we see is significantly impacting us. We're living in this tension. The people of God, while living in, in, in exile, I thought this, was, this, this uh, Psalm 137 is fascinating to me and gives me great language for what we're sensing. But in Psalm 137, this is a song from exile. This is while they're in Babylon. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. When we remembered the good old days, we sat down and wept. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs. And our tormentors sang 
sing us one of the songs of Zion. Can you imagine these being hauled off into captivity? Jerusalem's been destroyed. And they're like, sing us one of those silly songs about your God. Sing to him. Sing us one of those songs. And this is their response. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How do we do this? How do we do this as a minority with a sense that we're living in exile, that we're no longer the majority, that we're seen as a threat, living under thumb? How do we sing the Lord's song while living in a foreign land? How do we be in but not of the world? It's a question that we still live in, right? We're trying to transform the culture around us, but the culture around us is succeeding in shaping us. The culture is doing an amazing job of making disciples. And the church is also called to make followers and disciples of Jesus. I want to look at how Nebuchadnezzar did this, how he sought to disciple Daniel, how Babylon looked to shape Daniel, and then I want to look at um, what Daniel did in response, and then we're going to respond at the altar. The first thing that Nebuchadnezzar did, if you notice, is that he got these young studs, and we think that they are, in fact, young. Between 13 and 16 years old is most people's idea of how old Daniel and his friends were. Bring me the cream of the crop. And it's not like Nebuchadnezzar looks to train them in Jerusalem. It's not like Nebuchadnezzar sacks Jerusalem and then says, I'm going to set up a school and start to train you guys here. Nebuchadnezzar knew that if he was going to conquer Jerusalem, he needed more than military force. He knew that he would need to train these young people on how to think like a Babylonian. Because if you thought like a Babylonian, then you would live like a Babylonian. So he targeted their minds. And the first thing he did is isolate them. He grabbed them and plucked them out of their context. He didn't train them in Jerusalem. He took them away from Jerusalem, put them in the middle of Babylon, and sought to isolate them. And that's still the enemy's scheme, that he would keep you isolated from the things that shape you. That you, like Daniel, would be isolated from fellowship. That you, like Daniel, would be isolated from regular worship. That you, like Daniel, would be isolated from the things that form and shape you. That's what happened. If the, the enemy knows that if he can get you away from those influences, those things that mold you and shape you and surround you with something else, well, the pressure of that something else is going to win out. Have you felt tempted to isolate? Are you in a place right now where you're isolating? This was one of Nebuchadnezzar's schemes to disciple these young men. And the world will look to isolate you from the people of God and the wisdom of God and the testimony of what God's doing. He'll look to do that. Probably the biggest uh, bummer for these boys Probably the biggest evidence that they were far from home in a strange land, speaking a strange language, learning a strange religion. Probably the biggest factor is that there was an assault on their identity. Their names were changed. Daniel means God is my judge. And every time someone called Daniel's name, he was reminded of where he was from, what he was about. And every one of these boys, there was an assault on their identity and their names were changed. Daniel's name was changed to Belshazzar, which means Bel's prince. And Bel was a title for Marduk, 
their demonic God. So can you imagine your name is God is my judge? And then you come to Babylon and your name is changed to Bell's Prince. Same thing happened to his friends. And I can imagine that every time someone called their name, they were reminded that they had been uprooted and they were isolated, that they no longer had these names that testified to who God was and who they were as Hebrews, but they had these names that reminded them that they were in a foreign land, that they had been plucked up and hauled out. The other assault on Daniel's legacy, the other assault on his heritage, the thing that our kids aren't learning about right now, Neva's teaching a course on Dare to be Daniel, and I hope this isn't in there, but these men were castrated. These men became eunuchs. You can't have the best looking boys in Jerusalem running around with your harem. So when the king brought these men into his palace so that they wouldn't cause trouble in his palace, they became eunuchs. Again, their legacy removed. Their names, their identity, who they are. And if you think there's pressure in Western culture to get married and have kids, you have no idea what kind of pressure there was to have a legacy, to have children. And even, even we, we hear that they got a new name and we, that doesn't bother us either. Because for us, our names and our identity are only like loosely associated, right? They're only mildly associated. I hear a lot of people say, I don't know what the name means. I just liked the way that it sounded. The, the name. And, and, and your destiny are only like mildly associated with one another. That was not the case in the Near East. Your name was who you were. Your destiny was like, this is, this is who I am. You wore it in a whole different way. And so these guys are in a foreign land. They've been isolated, hauled off, strange language. And this is part of Nebuchadnezzar's plan. The other part of Nebuchadnezzar's plan is indoctrination. He's going to target their minds and he's going to go right after them. So they, they get enrolled after they're castrated into Babylon University. And they've got three years at Babylon U. And I just want to remind you this morning, and we'll continue as the study goes on. Babylon is the personification of evil in Scripture. Last night I told my wife, can you get me some Kleenexes? Because I've got a cold and I'm about to get on a plane. Kleenexes is a brand of tissue, but it's so dominant. It's the personification of tissue. And that's what Babylon is, the personification of evil. You can just say Babylon, and there's a lot of thoughts that come to mind because it's such a representative of evil. So it's no small thing to be enrolled in three years of Babylon University. To go to Babylon U was to spend years getting a degree in astrology and the occult. This course was designed to certify them as enchanters and magicians. This course was designed to create experts in satanic ritual. This isn't like, oh, that's cool, be a foreign exchange student. Daniel, you should probably learn about their customs. That's 
not what this was for them. And this is no small thing because, again, I'll say it again. How we think determines how we live. And Nebuchadnezzar was bombarding their minds. Bombarding them. And for those of you here, you're being, your mind is being bombarded with ideas that affect how you live. When you buy in, when you bite, when you go, yeah, that is the way it is. It determines how you live. Your mind is being targeted. And the enemy is using lies and accusation constantly. And if he can get you to buy in, then he doesn't need to like, you know, if he can get you to live those things out, live a certain way, then like Nebuchadnezzar, it's not like he needs to police it or control it. Indoctrination happens. And then this leads to compromise. This leads them to compromise their faithfulness. This would lead them to walk away from who they've been and where they've been and the God that they serve. And I don't think we need a long sermon on compromise, but I just want to point out to you how justified Daniel might have been to compromise in this situation. Some of you know what it's like to go away to college and be surrounded by pressure to go with the flow, right? That there's tremendous pressure. Some of us are feeling the pressure even now in business. Tremendous pressure to go with the flow. And Daniel, I think, could have been justified to compromise. He could have been saying to himself, God, you've disappointed me. God, where are you? God's distant, and therefore, because he's distant, then I don't owe him anything. He didn't deliver us. He delivered us into captivity. And because he delivered us into captivity, then I'm justified in my compromise. That goes on for you, and it goes on for me. Well, if God were here, if God were near, if God were doing what God was supposed to be doing, then maybe I wouldn't be doing these things. But because he's not comforting me, because I'm crying out to him, and it feels like I'm crying out to no one, to nothing, well, then I will take hold of what's in front of me. I'll take hold of that person. I asked him for a spouse, and he's not provided that. So I'll take whatever's in front of me. I asked him for comfort, and he hasn't provided that. So I'll take hold of that burrito at Kalima's. We'll take hold of anything, and we feel justified doing it because he's disappointed us. He's not come through. Daniel could have been incredibly, we read this story and we think, oh, Daniel, man, he had these amazing encounters, delivered from a lion's den. Here they are going into a fiery furnace. God kept showing up for them. Daniel lived his entire life in captivity. His legacy cut off. He never went home. And in many ways, we probably would have justified the compromise. God's distant. If he were here and if he were near, yeah, then maybe I would hold to these things. But he's gone. He's forsaken us. So I'm going to do what I need to do. He didn't do that. He refused to defile himself. And uh, I want to end by talking about... That Daniel purposed, that Daniel decided, I want to talk about the way that he purposed, and I want to talk the why, why he purposed, why he risked holiness, why did he do these things. I want you to notice, because I, I loved this, I don't know if you saw, but there is this, there is this 
repeating phrase in Daniel chapter 1, and the Lord gave. And the Lord gave. Again, the big theme of Daniel, despite appearances, it's God who's in control. It's God. So he says, the Lord gave us over to be disciplined. The Lord. The Lord gave us over. That's in verse 2. When Nebuchadnezzar marched, it was the Lord who handed us over. But that's not the only reference. In verse 9, we see another one. And God gave Daniel. It wasn't just that he gave him a spanking. It's not just that he gave him over to captivity. It's not just that he gave him over to be disciplined. God also provided and God gave Daniel favor and compassion. It wasn't just his resolve to not defile himself. It was the Lord who gave him favor and gave him compassion. And then in verse, seven, in verse 17, it says, and God gave them learning and skill. So it's not just that God gives a spanking and then you're on your own to sort it out or resolve or fix it. It's that God delivered them to be disciplined, yeah, like a good father does. And God also gave them favor. God also gave them compassion. God also gave them learning, gave them wisdom. But Daniel, it says, he purposed. He resolved. And I I love that picture. And as I reflected on it this week, I was thinking... I think Daniel decided long before he was put in this difficult situation how he was going to stand. He decided, he purposed not to defile himself. He made a covenant with his eyes. Other places in scripture refer to this. Like we're going to decide, this is how I'm going to respond. No matter what comes my way, this is my stance. Because if you don't have a stance, you're likely to get pushed over when it comes. Yeah, 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 I'm just going to float and see what happens. I can tell you what's going to happen. And Daniel resolved, he purposed, he was decisive, he had a stand, he took a stand. And as things press in, right now the temptation to isolate, right now the pressure, the attack that's on your mind, right now the pressure, the attack to compromise, what have you resolved to do? What have you purposed in your heart to do? Daniel had decided, I'm deciding not to defile myself because I know when I get in that environment, I know the pressure that's going to come. I know the temptation that's going to come. You have to resolve. You have to decide. If you think you're just going to float through this and end up in holiness, you're wrong. The tide is going a certain direction. You have to purpose. You have to resolve in your heart. I also want you to notice the way he purposed. The way he did this is amazing. The way he stood and was faithful. You don't have to be obnoxious to be faithful. You don't have to be obnoxious to be faithful. You think to yourself when that like meal was presented before him, you know, Daniel didn't start like a campaign, no like hashtag, no picketing. He takes the chief aside and quietly and privately says, hey man, I've got a proposition for you. He doesn't take him aside and say like, You unkosher, heathen, pagan, Babylonian scumbags. I will not eat that trash. Take my life now. Again, this is where it gets into being a creative minority. A creative minority. I can't believe the creativity he exhibits with his head on the line. He takes him aside quietly and privately. You don't have to be obnoxious to be faithful. And being faithful involves more than a stand. It involves doing it the way Jesus would do it. 
It's not just that we're faithful to this stance. We're faithful to a way of doing what we're doing. And I love it that he does it quietly and privately. Not in protest, not looking. Listen, quietly and privately, this was not public. This was not public. So many people initially want to take their stand public. Look at me, I'm the hero. You'll never be a hero publicly until you're a hero privately. No one knows about his diet. He says, hey, give me a shot between me and you. Just watch us for 10 days. You'll see what happens. And he does it privately before he does it publicly. I think that's huge for us. Because we dream of being a hero publicly, like on a stage, but it's not happening. We're compromising privately. And if we do get anything public on a stage and it's not happening privately, then it's just hypocrisy. It's just hypocrisy. And I love that before Daniel does these public exploits, before he's positioned in a place of favor and has this status, privately he's making really tough decisions. Richard Foster has a quote, and I don't know it by heart, but the gist of it is that the world doesn't need any more gifted people. It needs deep people. And I see Daniel developing a private life so that when he gets a platform, he's a person of incredible, not just gift, but of depth. Like it's, it's happening. And I don't, I don't know like... Where along the line he decides to take a stand. But I just think it's incredible how creative he is. So he gets his name changed and apparently he doesn't throw a fit about that. He gets enrolled in Babylonian U to learn satanic rituals and he's like, all right, I'll deal with that. And finally they're like, eat this. And he's like, you know what? No, not going to do that. He takes a stand. Some people think that he took a stand because he was so... Uh, committed to things being kosher, so committed to the Old Testament dietary laws, but that doesn't hold up because he actually drank wine. Or, or sorry, in the Old Testament dietary laws, you could drink wine, and he refuses the king's wine. And then some people think that the food was offered to idols before it was offered to Daniel. So he went, no, I'm not going to take the food because that food's been offered to idols. But that doesn't hold up either because the veggies were probably offered to idols as well. So it's not just like, well, I'll take this, I'll take that, but all of it had been offered. I found this really fascinating. Rather than these doubtful reasons, we believe that the motivation lies more closely connected to the story. Daniel and his three friends, uh, more closely connected, Daniel and his three friends are in a process of education and preparation for service. Their minds, as well as their bodies, are being fed by the Babylonian court. If they prosper, then to whom should they attribute their development and success? The Babylonians. However, by refusing to eat the food of the king, they know it is not the king who is responsible for the fact that they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the other young men who ate the royal food. Their robust appearance, usually attained by rich fare of meats and wine, 
is miraculously achieved through a diet of vegetables. Only God could have done it. They're subverting. They're subverting the whole system by saying Babylon is not my source. This meat, this wine is not my source. God himself has done this. It's not the result of your food. It's him who sustains us in Babylon. I love it, man. This is quiet resistance. So why did he do it? Why did he risk holiness? I mean, even the chief of the eunuchs is going like, look, I'm fearing for my head in this. Why did he finally take a stand? Why did he risk holiness? Some of you know, you're, you're being told, like, loosen up a little bit. Come on, man, quit being so holy. Live a little. The greater risk involves holiness. The greater vi- risk involves trusting God to satisfy us and not taking what's immediately in front of us. The greater risk is to stand for him, and some of you know that in business. The greater risk is to pursue holiness in relationship. Why does he take this risk? Well, I think that he knew the promises. I think that Daniel knew the promises. And he didn't like, know it, know it. I mean, he's risking it. But the only way to know that a promise is a good promise is to stand on that promise. And here's Daniel standing on what I believe. I believe that he knew Isaiah 43, which is the prophet Isaiah speaking this over the people of God right before they get ready to go into exile. Isaiah knows that they're going into exile. And he keeps saying, if you keep acting like this, you're going to be led into exile. You'll be hauled off. But then this is what Isaiah, in a prophetic utterance, says to the people of God. But thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name, you're mine. What an amazing reminder as there's an assault on his identity and he's being renamed. I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You're mine, Daniel. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Isn't it amazing that these boys went to Babylon? This literally came to pass. What Isaiah prophesied over them, as you go, as you get hauled off into exile, remember that you're his. Remember that he named you. Remember as these rivers rise that you'll not be overwhelmed and as you walk into this furnace, you'll not be burned up. I believe that he risked holiness because he believed that God would be faithful. That Daniel himself was faithful because he was believing that God would be faithful and he would in fact do what he said. The other reason that he risked holiness is he had some sense of welfare or protection. That when he was faithful, God would be faithful to deliver him. That he would find favor. And the other thing, the other reason I think he risked holiness is because it was an incredible testimony. Some of us think that our holiness is in the way of our testimony. That we could have a more, more, more of an impact if we were just more relevant or knew where people were coming from or could connect with them on that level. Look, a part of God's mission has always been to have a peculiar people in their ethics. It's a part of his mission, not to remove us from the mission. The call to Christian ethics is to engage mission. 
that through holiness, we would have even an even bigger impact. And that would have been the message of Daniel 1. That you can be useful and fruitful while remaining faithful to him. That you don't have to give that up in order to have an impact. You don't have to sell that in order to be useful or to connect with culture. Here is Daniel impacting a culture by being faithful and walking in holiness. He understood the relevance of holiness. And we don't. This call to be other than for the sake of the mission. We have always been and we will always be weird. Keep Christianity weird. May it never not be weird. May you never not be weird. There is relevance to our holiness. And so here's the deal. Worship team, would you guys come? This is what we're going to do this morning because I, I feel... Uh, I feel like people are incredibly uh, tempted, like you're being targeted, uh, you're being tempted to isolate, you're being tempted to buy in to a set of lies that will lead you to live a certain way, and you're incredibly tempted right now to compromise. There probably are areas, I know there are for me, I'm sure there are for every one of us, areas of compromise. You're being uh, targeted. And I guess what I want to ask is, what are you resolving to do? What are you purposing to do? You're just going to get pushed over? You're just going to cave? Or is something going to rise up in you and saying, I've decided in my heart, I've decided in my heart that I'm going to risk holiness. I'm going to trust God to satisfy me. So I'm going to forego these pleasures because I feel like there's a lasting pleasure in Him. And I've not tasted it yet, but I know it's true. I know it from His word and Christian testimony and witness, and I'm standing on it. These aren't just promises, these are my promises. So if you're here and you're saying like, man, I've compromised, I know it. What I'd love you to do is to confess it, to receive forgiveness for it, and then resolve to do something else by the power of His Holy Spirit. So here's what we're going to do. There's going to be people up here praying for you. You can confess with your mouth. Because listen, this is the way out of isolation. Some of you are so alone in your thoughts. This is the way out to share what's really going on for you. This is the way to community. This is, this is the way to community. If you're wondering, how do I connect at Radiant? How do I have some real relationships? Share what's really going on for you, and you can really have relationships here. Continue to fake it and come in your buttoned-up shirt, and you'll continue to miss what we have here. Share. Come out of isolation. And then bring the lies out. This is what is bombarding me. And then declare, this is what I'm, I've resolved to be doing and risk uh, holiness. So there'll be a group of people up here ready to pray with you, stand with you. We're also going to open up the communion table. Because again, this isn't just about you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. This is that Jesus has resolved to save us. And he will do what he said he would do. And so we remember his broken body and his blood poured out for our compromise that he didn't back down even when we did. And we receive his forgiveness and we receive the opportunity to go again. So I'm going to pray. You can uh, worship. 
Uh, you can come to the table and remember what Jesus has done. Because here's the thing about the Holy Spirit. He's not just going to point out what you've done. He's going to reveal Jesus. He won't just point out how bad it is. He'll point out Jesus. It won't just be that he'll mock you as you sit stuck in your sin and shame. He will point to the cross and reveal a way out and a hope for every one of us. So would you stand with me? I'm going to pray. You can engage in song with Marissa. You can come to the table. And when you come to the table, you can receive prayer. Please don't walk away from an opportunity to get right. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to search us and know us. See if there's anything that you want to change in us. I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would highlight just one thing. I'm sure Daniel was just bombarded by a thousand things that needed to change in Babylon. But it was just one thing. I can't eat this. I know I can't eat this. There are some of you who have been consuming things. You've been feeding on things. And right now the Holy Spirit is saying to you, you cannot eat this. You can't feed on this anymore. You can't look to this anymore. Holy Spirit, we invite you to reveal specific sin, not just a vague general sense of like, I didn't do it. But come and reveal sin and then come and reveal a Savior. Come and reveal the cross. Thank you for the opportunity to witness in our holiness. Thank you for the opportunity to witness in our brokenness, God. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantvicelia.com. Until next time. There is a heavenly city that I'm compelled to find. Oh, I love the flowers and trees and the smell of the grinding sea and all the beautiful things here in life. Bye.